Welcome to Sunday morning at First Presbyterian Church. I'm Pastor Danny Deeth, and as we walk with Jesus Christ through these last days of his earthly life, culminating in Holy Week, we invite you to join us in this Lenten journey, a journey of introspection, a journey of preparation, a journey that will help us to come home to God through Christ. So we invite you to join us as we set our feet toward Jerusalem. Come on in. Our first scripture is from Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson builds on the first of Zechariah and the king coming on the donkey. Today we are looking at Luke's account of Jesus coming of what we call the triumphal entry. It is Luke 19, 28 through 40. Luke 19, 28 through 40. 40. Listen again with fresh ears. After he had said this, Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he has told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners came out and asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along, as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds and power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, 
the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. It is Palm Sunday, one of our days of celebration in the midst of our Lenten focus on our own shortcomings, the way and the hard work that we have done to get to this point to prepare for what will happen this week. We have just a moment that is broken with the joy and the praise of Christ. If you remember last week, we talked about the woman who anointed Jesus's head in this case. Uh, two gospels have Jesus's head being anointed in some, Jesus's feet. And if you remember, it was that costly ointment, that oil, that was a year's wages. And Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. And we talked about, number one, how we can be Bethany, the city that Jesus spends time in outside of Jerusalem. How can we be a safe and welcoming place, not only for Christ in our hearts, but for the world? And then secondly, what beautiful thing can we do for Christ? I challenged you last week to do that last week. I heard from several of you, thank you for letting me know. Today is an extension of that. In the midst of Jesus's hard life, last week and this week, there is a moment, two moments, where Jesus is loved and adored through the anointment, although we know, and he said, it is preparing his body for his burial, for his death last week. And then this week, just a moment of celebration as Jesus is heading in to Jerusalem for this last week. Disciples don't know that. These other followers don't know that. The Romans don't know that. The temple authorities don't know that, but Jesus does. He's been trying to tell the disciples. Some may get it at this point and some may not. But it is a moment of joyful celebration. Now, let's Put the context, the story in context really quick. Let's do a summation. We know what happens. It's a fairly familiar text. Even if you are not a believer or follower, the world knows this text. Jesus has, prior to the triumphal entry, we're in chapter 19, and right before this in chapter 19, Jesus has his encounter with Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he? Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the world, Lord, he wanted to see. Remember, he was little, tax collector. Climbed up in a tree when all the bustle was coming. Here comes this Jesus fella. Jesus saw him and said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Zacchaeus was despised by the people, even though he was Jewish. He was a tax collector. He exploited the people. He collected too much, was a puppet of Rome. So he was despised on all sides. And one of the interesting things that's different from the rich young ruler, if you remember, came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, do this, this, this. He said, oh, I've done that since I was a kid. I've honored all those commandments. He said, now go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he kind of walks away. Here, Zacchaeus makes restitution to those that he has harmed. He has given money back fourfold 
to those that he extorted, that he broke the law and took advantage of after his encounter with Christ at the table. After that event, bless you, Jesus tells the parable of the pounds and the master who trusts three servants and says, a pound, a a unit of, of money. The master leaves. The first servant goes out, turns one pound into 10 pounds. Master comes back and says, oh, you are great. I'll give you 10 cities. The next one says, well, master, I didn't do as good, but I did. I made you one pound, five pounds. He says, oh, that, that's not great, but it's not bad either. I'll give you five cities for your five pounds that you earned in my absence. And then the last one said, uh, in essence, um, because you were cruel and you do bad things, I was afraid I was going to lose that one pound. So I buried it. So nothing happened to it. And the master gets mad because he didn't use what he had been given to earn for the master. So those two now segue into the triumphal entry. And again, really quick, and depending on the gospel account, Jesus tells disciples to go and to fetch a donkey. In this case, a a colt, one that hasn't been ridden before. A young under four is, is a colt and bring it here, and we assume the owner knew Jesus. He said, untie it, and if they come out and say, why are you taking this colt? Just tell them the master needs it. That's somebody who knows Jesus. That's somebody who acknowledges that he is the master. And so they go, they take it, just as Jesus said, take it back. And when they do that, then they put their cloaks, their coats, The object in plain sight today is the coat. All of these that you see are coats that Andrew has prepared to help us think about that visual symbol of faith. They put their coats on the donkey for Jesus to ride and on the ground along with palm branches to prepare the way, which in ancient Israel was something that had been done in the past for kings who are coming in in their own processional and especially on a donkey, and the donkey was a symbol of peace. And we kind of think it's almost silly to us in our modern sensibilities, why would someone with such power and might come in on a donkey? And it would have struck some of them the same way as well. But there was precedent, as we heard in Zechariah, that kings could come in to convey a message of peace What if they wanted to convey a message of war and power? What would they ride? A horse, right, a horse. Stronger, stallion, strong. But this donkey of peace was Jesus's choice to convey to that crowd, to Jerusalem, for all who were there, that this king was different. Jesus has been trying to convey that from day one. I'm here to do things differently. I am prophet, priest, and king in those three categories that we see Christ as occupying. And today it's really a focus on king, kingship. Because in the past, both these donkeys and this celebration of laying down cloaks and palm branches, again, had been done before there was a precedent by kings who would come forward. 
So in that crowd, just like us today, if I were to ask each one of you who was Jesus, you would all tell me something different. In that crowd of those who were there, some were proclaiming Christ as king. Not necessarily divine, but as king. Some were proclaiming Christ as the prophet that they had seen teach and heal and reconcile to God all of these people that are coming. And some, the few is my guess, would have been toying with the idea of Jesus as Messiah. Some of the disciples, not all of them may have known that, but we know all of them had issues too. And if anyone was to understand that, it would have been the disciples. Jesus told them again and again, the son of man must come and suffer and die and three days later be raised again. That doesn't get through to their understanding. So there's a variety of ways that people are looking at Christ. But the action itself figures more into the king uh, category, their kingship. So they're looking at Christ, some of them, and thinking, here he comes. This is the apex of Christ's ministry. Everything from the birth, and we're in Luke's gospel, if you remember, Luke was shepherds and angels. From that first hallelujah by the heavenly hosts to welcome Christ into the world, every person he met, every story he told, every person he had a relationship with, every miracle he performed was now leading to this. Put on top of that, the fact that it was Passover, the time when Jews were required to come to Jerusalem, wherever they lived, to celebrate the events of the Exodus, Moses leaving, leading uh, uh, the people out of Egypt as slaves, freeing them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. We'll talk more about that Thursday night as Jesus and his disciples had gathered to celebrate Passover, enact the Seder meal, which is telling that Exodus story with symbolic foods. But here and now, all of that comes to a head. Everybody that was interested in seeing Jesus, anybody that had, even if they were in town, because the numbers of Jerusalem were swelled by thousands due to the fact that it was Passover, everybody was there to see Jesus. Some may have thought him a kook, but wanted to see who he was and what was going on. Some would have been faithful and with him from the beginning and wanted to see what would happen. Some, just as we are here, playing in our mind with who is Jesus and they wanted to come see what would happen. So here he is. There's enough people in that crowd that a parade of sorts is formed. And as Jesus comes down, they are screaming, Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That understanding of Hosanna, that is both an affirmation and an exclamation of worshiping and praising Christ. And also that translation of save us, which also would have been on a variety of levels. 
Some would have seen Jesus as king that were saying, save us from the occupiers of this pagan horde, the Romans who have taken us over. King Jesus, come in, wipe them out, push them out, restore Jerusalem. Some of that would have been save us. And then save us in another capacity. Some who would have understood probably the few of Christ as Messiah and what his larger goal here was to do to defeat the powers of sin and death through the cross that he will encounter at the end of the week and then the resurrection in the empty tomb. Save us. Save us. So all of that is interplaying. Disciples coming through. And I have to think for a minute, we always think about Jesus, but think about the disciples. This is one moment where the disciples get some affirmation. Think about their challenging journey for three years where people continue to have looked at them and they had to justify why they left their families, why they left their jobs, why they left everything and followed this carpenter from Nazareth. Are you kidding me? But here, the crowd is all in. They are affirming Christ in whatever ways that they think that they are. And for the disciples, I'm sure it was a nice moment as well. And we know that as Christ rides in, that they are praising his name. We also know what happens possibly even at the end as he goes into Jerusalem. Depending on the gospel, we usually see Monday tomorrow of Holy Week as the day when Christ goes into the temple, cleanses the temple, turns the tables. Tuesday as a day where he teaches, goes past the, the, the fig tree, teaches in parables. Wednesday is quiet. There may have been some things happening, but generally the gospels don't lift up a whole lot on Wednesday. Then Thursday, the last supper, going after supper, uh, the communion to the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal, the arrest, the beatings and trials begin into Friday, into Good Friday that was not good for Christ, was horrible the day of his crucifixion. Saturday is silent and quiet. And then Easter, the day that changed the world forever and everybody in it. That's this week. So here again at the end of this little parade, what are they expecting to see? Is King Jesus going to go in, take out the Romans somehow? He calmed the sea. This guy could wave his magic wand and get rid of all the Romans, I guess. But no, Mark's gospel says he goes in, he goes to the temple, he looks around, and then he leaves again. Goes to Bethany for the night. Stay with presumably his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. But think about that. Here we are. Here he comes. He's the one. He's the liberator. He's going to get us out. He's going to free us. He goes in, looks around, and says, I'm done for the day, and goes back out. Already, people might have thought, that's not what a Messiah does. That's not what a king does. That's not what I thought this guy was supposed to do. They were already starting to turn. 
They would have seen, some of him would have seen them on the donkey and said, this is not a symbol of power. And already they would have started to turn. And so almost as immediate as we hear these accolades and shouts of praise, people are starting to turn against Christ because he is different than he thought, than they thought he should be. Would it be any different if Jesus came here to our sanctuary on a Sunday morning and said, first prayers, great to see you. Community, Columbus, the world, so good to see you. Here's what I need you to do. Bam, 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 bam. Eyes open, jaws on the floor. Well, what, what? Well, that's, um, well, I know we think about, but, but do what? I think we too would think, well, that's, is that really what the disciple, the, the Messiah would have us do? And would we do those things? We struggle today, friends, as much as they did then. Don't think we're any different. So Jesus comes through and right at the end of his journey, we have to throw in some Pharisees for a little bit of friction, just to pepper that in there. And not all Pharisees were bad, but there seemed to always be a little bit of heat between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisee says, hey, Jesus, quiet it down. Can you tell your disciples, your followers to rein it in a little bit? It could very well be that they were afraid that they were gonna trigger Pilate and his army to swoop in and smash them all right there. If this looked like an uprising or a riot or a revolt, it could very well would have been on what could have been on their mind. They may also not have liked at all that so many people were there praising Christ. But whatever reason they say, Jesus, can you tell them to rein it in? And Jesus says, oh no, buddy. Oh no. If they were silent, even the stones would cry out. So, so what? Now we got the story, we got the context, good. Two quick things I want you to do. Number one, it's an extension of last week, which again, if you remember the lady that anointed Jesus's feet, he said, she did a beautiful thing for me. Last week, I challenged you to do beautiful, do a beautiful thing for Christ. And several of you let me know what that is. And thank you for those of you who did those things and let me know. Today, it's a continuation. The first and the foremost, we are like John the Baptist in the sense that we are here to prepare the way for Christ. Like the floodlight that shines on our spire or church sign, we are not Christ. We are to shine the light on Christ for others to see. That was John the Baptist's job. And today we are to do the same only today it's with coats and palm branches. What are ways between now and Thursday noon, giving you more homework, between now and Thursday noon, last week it was a more intimate connection. How can you do something so that Christ would say, they did something beautiful for me? This week it's how do we prepare for Christ's coming for the crucifixion and the resurrection. What would be the equivalent of you sharing your coat or your palms to prepare the way for this King of glory who is coming? You have between now and Sunday, I'm, I'm sorry, Thursday noon to do that before we evolve into the Last Supper 
And that's a different focus. So prepare ye the way of the Lord, each one of you, each one of us. Specific ways, I want us to be intentional, plan that, and then do that thing. Number two, it's really interesting to me that last little bit in this passage where the Pharisee says, Jesus, calm calm down, buddy. Jesus says, oh no, oh no. If they were to be silent, all of these people, all of these disciples, even the stones would cry out. Even creation itself witnesses to the glory of God in Christ, and we know that, and even creation would testify to Christ in his resurrection. I think we are to be stones in some way. Even if they don't speak, Jesus says, the stones will cry out. Sometimes we don't speak out for Christ. We don't proclaim Christ's word. We're not witnesses for Christ in the world. We would be akin to those who are not praising God in this triumphal entry. Others have to do it for us, like the stones. Sometimes we are the ones who proclaim who speak, who are witnesses in the world because others are like those that are not proclaiming. It's an evangelistic focus about how we spread God's word. If you remember over the last maybe 30, 40 years, the evolution and growth of the Christian church is always amazing to track because at some point, The Christian church is declining in different parts of the world, and in other parts of the world, the Christian faith is on fire. For a generation or two, it's Africa. For a generation or two, it's Central America. Where is it right now? Where is, if you know, the place where Christianity, as percentage of its um, uh, citizenry, is growing the best and the strongest. Anybody have a guess? I heard it. Iran. Iran is number one. Afghanistan is number two. And because Iranians are um, taking the word to Afghanistan, it's because of them directly. There's a documentary I found called Sheep Among Wolves 2. It tells the story of Iranian Muslims converting to Christianity. A leader of the Iranian underground church explains their goal, and they're not doing this in buildings. Their goal is not planting churches, but rather making disciples, the majority of whom are women. Women in those cultures. A woman believer who's interviewed says, we know that if they get to us, the first thing they will do to us as a woman is rape us and they will beat us and ultimately they will kill us, one believer said. This is the decision we have made that we want to offer ourselves as sacrifices. I have to think about this when I wake up that when I leave that door, I might not come back. This leader of the Iranian underground movement goes on to differentiate between disciples and converts. 
Converts being those who say they are Christian and disciples acting as if they are Christian. Listen, disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus till he comes. Converts don't. Disciples aren't engaged in a cultural war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. So our call, and although being converted is the the way to start, whether that's a moment and you have a time and a place, fantastic, or that's a journey where you look back over your life and you see the power of the Holy Spirit and know that God has been with you from your first breath. However you come to Christ, you do, but that's just the beginning. You aren't baptized and then never set foot in a church again and can call yourself a Christian. The same is true with confirmation. The same is true when joining a church. The same is true in any mountaintop experience. That's a start. That's being a convert. But being a disciple, that's the harder work where your focus is on Christ and you are living it and walking the walk. And this is what Luke is telling us today about Christ walking the walk into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey. If we remember now at the end of this Lenten journey, we started on Ash Wednesday, Richard Rohr says, remember finally that the ashes that were on your forehead are created from the burnt palms of last Palm Sunday. New beginnings invariably come from old false things that are allowed to die. Today, Christ is coming to challenge the old false things of this world and usher in his kingdom. Remember that we are to prepare the way for Christ this week and think about how we can be witnesses for Christ in the world so that others, the stones don't have to do it for us, we can do it for ourselves or do it for those that can't do it for themselves. Glory, hallelujah, Christ is triumphant and he is entering Jerusalem to change the world for us forever. Hallelujah. Amen.